All right, good morning. I am excited about this morning's sermon. I have been excited about it for about a week and a half. Uh, Doug Davison last week in his sermon already told you that I'm really excited about this sermon. It will be uh, different from a lot of the sermons that I have preached before in that um, I don't have this morning like one main text to preach, one main scripture passage to preach on. I'm going to have to grab little bits from various places in the Bible in order to describe the time period that we're going to describe in the life of Paul. So we are Continuing our series, Life of Paul, we are now at part four, and we are moving on to the next time period in um, this guy named Paul's life. And in fact, I'm, I'm calling him Paul right now, but I'm about to switch, because we have already discussed in this series that he actually went by the name Saul for the first half of his life. And we are still at that point of the story, where he is someone that, as best as we can tell, was going by Saul. So I'm going to call him, I'm, we're still calling him Saul here until the Bible starts calling him Paul. Um, so we're talking about Saul's life, and we're going to talk about today a period of time in Saul's life that are known as the silent years, okay? And when I say known as, I mean the scholars call this time period that we're going to talk about today the silent years of the life of Saul, or the unknown years. And the reason it's called that is because we don't know what he did during this time period. There is a point in the story between, and this is if you're going through the book of Acts, between Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 11 where Luke seems to fast-forward the story. Like, he just skips a chunk of Saul's life. A chunk of Saul's life, and he just doesn't even talk about it. And, and, and it's a chunk of life that may be up to a decade long that just gets jumped over. Um, it depends on what scholar you look at and which books you read and which websites you go to as far as how long the silent years are. I think there was one book that I looked at that the guy thought that the silent years of Saul were three to four, a three to four year period. There's one website, website I looked at that said it was a seven to eight year period. There's some people that think it were long, was longer than that. Uh, later on in this sermon, I'm going to explain why I believe it was about 10 years, a 10 year period of time in his life that we don't know a lot about. But before I get to that, let me first ask this question. Mario. Why would you even do a sermon on a time period that the Bible doesn't cover? Right? That seems like a dumb idea. Like, isn't, like is, is this even a good use of our time to talk about a time period in, in Saul's life that the Bible doesn't even cover? And my answer to that is yes, and for two reasons. Number one, because there are hints in other places in the Bible that help us to take a good guess at what took place during these years. And so we can kind of figure out a little bit of what took place during this time period from other places in the Bible. But I also think, and this is my second reason I want to preach on this, I think there is value in knowing, just simply knowing that there is a period of time in Saul's Christian life that we don't know much about. Like later in the sermon, I hope you'll agree with me, I think there's value in knowing what we don't know about. And so since I don't have a, like so there's no passage in the book of Acts that describes the time period I'm trying to describe, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you the two sections that come right before and right after it. So Acts chapter 9, which is the time period just before this time, and Acts chapter 11, which is the time period just after this time, um, they're like two bookends. So I'll read the two bookends, and then hopefully you'll realize in between those two bookends is the time period I'm going to try to preach on. So here we go. Acts chapter 9, uh, starting in verse 28. These are verses that Doug Davison read to us last week when he was preaching, us, preaching the sermon last week. Here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 28. Saul was coming and going with them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He conversed and debated with the Hellenistic Jews, but they attempted to kill him. Do you remember that from last week? When the brothers found out, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, 
Okay? When the brothers found out, what brothers? Like his brothers in Christ, right? The other Christians. When they found out, found out what? Found out that there were people trying to kill Saul. What did they do? They helped him escape. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Caesarea was a port city, so probably on a boat, just like if you were to take someone to Orlando in order for them to go to you know, New York. That's, that's what's similar here. They took him to Caesarea, not for him to be there, but they sent him off to Tarsus. As best as we can tell, that was his hometown, right? So they're sending him back home. That's where we left off. Last week, as far as the plot line of the story of Paul's life, that's where we left off. They sent him off to Tarsus. After that, the story stops talking about Saul for a little while and goes on for about a chapter and a half in the book of Acts. And what happens during this period of time is the gospel begins to spread to the Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-Jewish people. The earliest Christians were all Jewish people, and they all believed in the Old Testament and that there was this Messiah that was supposed to show up. And then when Jesus showed up, they're like, oh, the, you know, the Messiah from the Old Testament has shown up. And so they put their faith in him. And then what happens in this next little section is people who don't even, weren't even into any of that start believing in Jesus. The Gentile people who didn't even believe in the Old Testament, they didn't even have an Old Testament. They weren't like waiting for a Messiah to show up and save them. They started hearing about Jesus and what he had done and that he was the savior of the world and he was the Lord and they started to believe in him. So the earliest Christians in Jerusalem, the Jewish ones, all were like, whoa, what is going on? So they took this guy Barnabas and that's a character that Doug Davison interested, uh, introduced us to last week. They asked this guy Barnabas if he would go to this city named Antioch and just check out what's going on. Like just go check out this whole Gentiles are coming to believe in Jesus stuff. So Barnabas went and that's where we pick up the story. Okay, at this point, we don't know how many years have gone by. I think, I think maybe it's about 10, but here we go. Acts chapter 11, verse 23. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, so the he there is Barnabas, arrived where? Arrived in Antioch and saw the grace of God. What grace of God? That the Gentiles were coming to know Jesus and they were becoming the followers of the way and they were believing in him. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with a firm resolve of the heart. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Okay? Now, why did he go to Tarsus? And the he there is Barnabas. Barnabas went to Tarsus to search for Saul. Why did he go to Tarsus to search for Saul? Because that's where he was, right? Remember back in chapter 9? They took him to Caesarea because they went, oh no, they're trying to kill you. And they sent him off to Tarsus. So if you're following along in the story, it sure seems like Saul has been hanging out there for a while. And Barnabas was aware of that. And so when he went to go find him, he went where he was. He went to Tarsus to search for Saul. And then this is what happens. Verse 26, he finds him. And when he found him, that's Barnabas found Saul, he brought him to Antioch, the place where all the Gentiles were coming to know Jesus. And there was a lot of like pastor work to be done. For a whole year, and I really want you to remember that, that's going to matter later. For a whole year, one whole year, they met with the church in Antioch and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So Paul and Barnabas are the, or Saul and Barnabas are the pastors or the teachers at this church for a year. So if the Lord wills, my plan is that next week, this is going to be what we learn about. We're going to learn about the time period that Saul was in Antioch being a pastor there with Barnabas. So that's the next period of time right here. And the one that was before was they sent him off to Tarsus. And so now for the rest of the sermon, I want to talk about what happened in the middle there, right? So they sent him off to Tarsus, 
And then here we are a little while later, and they find him, and he goes and pastors in Antioch. But what did he do for all those years in the middle? First of all, how many years were there in the middle? Because if you just read through the book of Acts, Luke doesn't say how much time everything happened in. And so you might think, like, this was just a few weeks or a few months later. But I think that he was in Tarsus for about 10 years. So what was he doing in Tarsus for 10 years until he went to be one of these pastors at this church in Antioch? Well, first I want to explain to you why I think it's 10 years, okay? I know that I could just say it was a 10-year period, and there will be some of you in this room that will be like, yeah, that's fine. You're a pastor. You know this stuff. I don't care. Um, But I think others of you probably want to know why, and so I want to explain to you why I've come to that conclusion. Basically, I want to show you my work, and when I mean show you my work, I mean, remember that moment in math class? Yeah, where the teacher was like, you got to show your work because there was a particular math problem and you just wrote 300 and they were like, eh, you could have done that with a calculator. I want you to show me how you got to 300. You remember that? Mm-hmm, it was rough. But, but you, it, was good. it was good for you that she did that, right? Or he, whoever it was. So that's what I want to do today. I want to show you not just like, hey, this is 10 years. I want to, tell you, I want to show you how I got to 10 years. You can see if you agree or not. But the reason I think that he was in Tarsus for a while um, is because of Galatians chapter 1. If you look at Galatians chapter 1, Galatians is a letter written by Saul. I mean, he was going by the name Paul at the time he wrote it. But there's a point in this letter where he refers back to this time period that we're talking about. And he starts with how he became a Christian. And so he starts talking about his conversion. And then he says, this was the next thing. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 17. After he becomes a Christian, it says, I did not go up to Jerusalem. This is Galatians 1, 17. I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who had become apostles before me. Instead, I went to Arabia and came back to Damascus. Then after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. So you see he's saying, I became a Christian, and what did I do? First thing I did when I, when I became a Christian, I didn't go to Jerusalem and meet the other apostles. That was not number one on the to-do list. No, I went to Arabia and Damascus. How long was he there? Looks about three years, because he says, then after three years, so the assumption is this was about a three-year time period, and then after three years, I did go to Jerusalem to get to know Cephas. Now, who's Cephas? You remember? Yeah, Peter. Doug Davison preached on this last week. He told us this, right? Cephas is Peter, and I think um, Cephas is actually Peter's name, I think just in a different language. So, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem and get to know Cephas, and I stayed with him 15 days. So for following the, the, the timeline here, he becomes a Christian. He spends about three years in Damascus and Arabia. And then he spends two weeks hanging out with Peter. Verse 19, but I didn't see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now I'm not lying in what I write to you. God is my witness. Afterward, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. What does afterwards mean? Okay, in this case, it means I became a Christian then there was the three-year time period I was in Arabia and Damascus. Then there was the two-week period I was with Peter. And then after that, right? So we're, we're talking about three years and two weeks later, right? So I've become a Christian. And now, about three years later, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. For now, just go ahead and memorize those words, Syria and Cilicia. They are going to matter later on in the sermon, okay? But let me keep reading. So that's what he says he did next, after the three-year period. And the two-week period, but that's two weeks. We're just going to skip right over that. Okay, so I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I remained personally unknown to the Judean churches, right? I didn't know the people in Jerusalem. I only spent two weeks there. That's it. I, did, I, was, I remained unknown to them. Unknown to the Judean churches in Christ. They simply kept hearing, he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Here's the next verse. Then... 
After 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. Here's where I get my numbers from, okay? This is why I think it was 10 years. You might go, I don't, I don't even see a 10 up there, Mario. That's 14. So here's the timeline. We've got 14 years that Saul, it seems to me, he's saying, I'm assuming after 14 years means from, my, from the point of my conversion. So he became a Christian, and after 14 years... He had a second trip to Jerusalem because there was a, a first trip to Jerusalem that was the quick two-week one, remember? So his second trip to Jerusalem was at the 14-year mark. So we got 14 years of his life. Now, where was he for the first three years of it? Arabia and Damascus, right? So we take 14 minus 3 and we're at 11. Very good. All right. Now, we got 11 years between Arabia and Damascus and the second trip to Jerusalem. What, where, where was he for these 11 years? Now, what, this is all we have. Look at verse 21. During the 11 years, he says this, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Well, what's Syria and Cilicia? Hmm, such a good question. Glad you asked. Syria is a region, and in the region of Syria, Antioch is there. Okay? Syria is the region that Antioch is in, and Cilicia is the, re is the region that Tarsus is in. So he's saying there was this 11-year period that he was in the region that Antioch was in and the region that Tarsus was in. Well, we know back from Acts chapter 11 that I read to you earlier, like the, the next part of the story, Barnabas found him to minister in Antioch, which is in Syria, and they taught together, the Gentiles there, for how long? Do you remember? Yes, one year. So if you got 14 years, and we know what he did the first three, and then we've got another 11, and we know what he did the last one year, right? Because Luke told us that. We've got 14 years between his conversion and his second trip to Jerusalem. In fact, can we put the math problem up there so everyone can see it? 14 years between the conversion of a second trip to Jerusalem, minus three years in Arabia and Damascus, minus one year in Syria and Antioch, right? We know the 14 years he told us that. We know these three years he told us that. The fact that he was in Syria and Cilicia in between there, we know that. And Luke is the one that tells us it was a whole year that he was in Antioch. What does that leave? 14 minus three minus one, 10 years in Cilicia and Tarsus. Okay? I'm assuming most of it was in Tarsus. I guess he could have been in the region of Cilicia not being in Tarsus for some of that time. But Luke's version has him, implies that he's in Tarsus the whole time. Notice I say the bottom numbers are approximate. That's good for those of you that are super literal. Okay? You just need to know numbers, the people around stuff in the Bible. It could be that he was in Arabia for three, you know, three years and three months, and that doesn't mean they're lying. Okay? So, but approximately 14 years minus three years minus one years, we've got 10 years that he's hanging out in this region of Cilicia, probably in the city of Tarsus, right where Luke says he was. Now, that's how I come up with a number, all right? However, all of that is based on the understanding that Saul, in Galatians chapter 2, when he says, we went to Jerusalem for the second time, that Saul is describing the visit that, that Saul took to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11, okay? And that's coming up real soon, probably maybe next week that there was a trip that he took to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 11. And I think that's what he's referring to when he says that's what happened at the 14-year mark. Okay, which is why I'm saying 10. But I just wanted you to know there are some people who believe that Galatians chapter 2, describing the trip to Jerusalem, um, is actually describing a different trip that Saul took to Jerusalem later on in Acts chapter 15, okay, which would have been the third trip he took to Jerusalem. And that would have been the third trip if Luke told us everything, which we already know he doesn't tell us everything. Okay? But the third trip is Acts 15. And if that's what he's talking about at the 14-year mark, then what you would have to do is you'd have to take what we've done right here, and you'd have to subtract some more years off of the 10, because it would be however many years took place between those two trips, Acts 11 and Acts 15. And you'd come up with whatever number. And that is the reason why some websites that you go to or some books you read, some people believe that Saul's silent years were five years or six years or seven years. Okay? 
I don't think the exact number of years matters. Rather, what I wanted to establish for you today with the Bible, using Bible verses and explaining all this, is I just wanted you to know what we can tell from the Scripture is there is very, very likely a period of time that was several years long that Saul was in Tarsus of Cilicia with no details given as to what he did for all those years. So, again, we ask Mario, then why are you preaching on this time period if we don't know? So, number one, because the Bible gives us hints in other places that we can figure out what took place probably during these 10 years. And I want us to make an educated guess as to what he did during this time. I think it will be good for us as we're trying to think about the life of Paul. The second reason, and I already said this, but I'll say it one more time, I think there is value in us simply knowing that there is a multi-year period of time that is unaccounted for. Like, I think there's a lesson just in that, and I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But before we get to that, let's make our educated guess. What might he have been doing for all these years? So he's in Tarsus, let's say it's 10 years, or whatever, seven years, eight years. What did he do for all this time period? My guess is he did not travel much, okay? Now, one, you, you might think maybe he did travel a lot, because those of you who know a lot about the life of Saul slash Paul know that he was quite a world traveler. So it'd be easier for us to think, well, maybe he just went all over the place. But the reason I don't think he went all over the place, first of all, is the book of Acts seems to have him in Tarsus the whole time. Luke says they sent him off to Tarsus, and then the next time they talk about him, Barnabas goes to Tarsus. The implication is that's where he was for all those chapters. You also have his own testimony in the book of Galatians, that he was in Arabia and Damascus, right? And he was in uh, Jerusalem at one point, and he was in Antioch, Assyria, and then in between there, the only place he lists is Cilicia, the place where Tarsus is. So looking at what Paul said about himself and what Luke says about him, it looks like Saul stayed put in Tarsus maybe for a decade. What did he do for all those years? And I think we can make two really good guesses, all right? And both of these ideas I got from this book, so I, don't, I, just, I didn't make this up. This, is, this book is an illustrated guide to the Apostle Paul. It's written by a seminary professor in New Orleans. Fantastic. Alan S. Bandy is his name. Fantastic book. And here are, here are the two guesses that I want to give you. Guess number one of what he did for all these years sitting in that town. Guess number one is he made tents. He made tents. Why do you think he made tents? Well, first of all, the guy had to have some sort of job. Like we're talking about this dude is an adult in a town somewhere. He's got to put food on the table, right? He's got to pay the bills somehow. So he had to have some kind of job. What job did he have? Well, the only job we know of him actually having is tent maker. It says that later on in the book of Acts, not at this point, but later on it implies that's his occupation, that's the trade that he had, that's where his skills were, that's the way he made money. If you look at Acts chapter 18, I'll show it to you. Acts chapter 18, this is later in the story, but I don't see any reason why we can't assume that this which is true of him in Acts 18 would have been true of him before. Acts 18, starting at the end of verse 2, says, Paul came to them. The them is uh, two friends of his. Paul came to them, and being of the same occupation stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. So there's these couple of friends, and Saul, Paul at this point, decides to, to live with them and to work with them. Why did he choose to live with them and work with them? Because they, did the same, they had the same occupation he had. What was that? Tent maker. Could also be translated leather worker, I'm told. So what is tent making? What did he do? Well, as best as I can tell, it's using leather or whatever other material to make dwellings for people. And I think culturally, this would have been a significant job, and it would have been a significant 
aspect of their culture, okay? And so I, wanted to, I was trying to think this through. I don't think it's quite the same thing that we think of when we think of tents. Most of you in this room, like I, t- tent is not a, like a, tenting is, like that's not a thing that's a big deal to us. I would bet you there are a bunch of people in this room that do not even own a tent. And I would imagine there are probably a bunch of people in this room that do own a tent and it just sits in a closet somewhere all year long. And once or twice a year, you drag that thing out for the annual camping trip. But other than that, it's not a significant portion of your life, right? I'm assuming that it's different back then. They did not, I mean, this is, this is 2,000 years ago, totally different culture. So as he's making these dwellings for people, I'm thinking that first of all, this would have been housing for some people who could not afford a permanent home. I don't think there's any reason not to assume that this would be. First of all, there are people to this day in Ocala that live in a tent because they cannot afford a permanent home. I can't imagine that that would have been not true back then. It would have probably even been more true back then. So some people probably lived in tents. Um, There would be some people that, even if they had a permanent home, would probably be interested in the product that um, Paul was making so that you could have some sort of area that's kind of indoors if you want something to be shielded from the sun or shielded from the rain. There are people who would be travelers back then, and if you were traveling, you'd probably want to have a tent with you. They didn't have a hotel at every single stop along the interstate. They didn't have an interstate, right? They didn't have hotels. They didn't have the stuff. If you're traveling through the Roman Empire, you wanted to have a tent with you so that you were sleeping not in the rain each night. Um, I even read, um, actually, I think it was, yeah, it was in that book, that they even did makeshift tents that they would use when they were on a ship. And I never even thought about this, that ship travel back then would be very different than it is now. If you wanted to get across the Mediterranean back then, which I think would take several days, you would get on a ship, but they didn't have passenger ships. Did you know this? You don't just go on a ship back then and be like, you know, give them money and then here's your room with your own little bed and the towels are, you know, like a swan with a mint. You know, they, they didn't have that stuff. You, if you wanted to travel across the Mediterranean, you got on a cargo ship, right? And you got with people that were transporting goods across the sea and you just got on a cargo ship and you slept wherever you could sleep. And I think one of the things they said in that book is that people probably slept on the deck of the ship. And if you wanted to sleep not in the rain, you'd want some sort of tent as you were on this cargo ship going to where you're going. I tell you all of these things just to get you to kind of picture the idea of what a tent-making person's role in society would be. If you're someone like Saul, who has the skill that he can make these cheap, portable houses, maybe it's fair for us to, to guess and to say it this way, that for 10 years, Saul was probably a businessman. He was a mobile home manufacturer in Tarsus. That's what he did. He made his living manufacturing these dwellings in all likelihood. That's what he was doing for all those years. Now, is that all he did during those years? (laughs) I don't think so. From what I know about this man, and we will get to know him more and more as this series goes on, but from what I know about this man, there is no way that he simply spent 10 years making tents and just shut up about Jesus. If you know anything about his personality, you know that there's a 0% chance that that happened. He told people about Jesus. He had to have. He may have told people that he sold tents to about Jesus, right? Hey, let me throw this in for free. You need to know this. There may have been people that he sold tents to that became Christians because he told them about Jesus. There may be people that he told about Jesus as he sold a tent to, and they're like, next year I'm buying a a tent from someone else. Tell me all the Messiah, and I don't even care, right? I don't know all the stories that happened, but I'm just saying, I'm sure he told people about Jesus there. He probably persuaded some people in Tarsus to convert to Christianity, right? To join the way and believe in Jesus. Um, He probably taught these people after they became Christians and discipled them, right? If there's these people that now know Jesus because Saul told me about Jesus and here I am in Tarsus, 
He probably, they probably went back to him to learn more. And he said, oh, I'd love to teach you more. I, used, I was a Pharisee. I know so much about the Old Testament. I can tell you all these verses and how they were fulfilled in Jesus. I bet you he taught and discipled the people that came to know Jesus during this time period. And if there were several years of this and several people like this, maybe it's safe to say that after that amount of time, there would have been a, a church, right? A group of Christians, the church in Cilicia, right? The congregation there at Tarsus. And so that's guess number two. He started a church. Guess number one, he made tents. And guess number two, he started a church. And there is even a hint of this later on that you can, you can guess that maybe he did. Acts chapter 15 has a verse in it that I think is very interesting. Probably not super interesting on its own, but very interesting considering everything we've said so far. Acts chapter 15, verse 41 says this. And this is later on in his life. He's going by the name Paul at this point. He's about to go on his second missionary journey. And it says this at the beginning of the second missionary journey. He, that's Saul Paul, traveled through Syria and Cilicia. We know what those words mean now, right? Strengthening the churches. Now that's interesting. So he went back to Syria and Cilicia and he did what with those churches? He strengthened them. What does that mean? Well, strengthening a church probably doesn't mean starting a church. This is not saying that he traveled through Syria and Cilicia to start churches there. It's saying that he went to the region where Antioch was and the region where Tarsus was to support churches that already existed. Well, what churches already existed in these regions? Well, we know at least one in Syria. That would be the church at Antioch, that he would go and strengthen them. But what about Cilicia? What churches were there? Was there any church in Cilicia? Because it looks like he's strengthening something that started at some point. And here's what's weird. Up to this point in the book of Acts, there is no mention of any church in Cilicia. Luke's telling us this story, and he gets to Acts 15, and he just goes, oh yeah, and he went back and strengthened these churches. Wait, wait, strengthen a church? When did it start? Like, you didn't even mention that part of the story, Luke. Like, he's going back to a, to a place you never, he's going back to strengthen a congregation. You never even told us when that congregation formed. When did it form? We don't know. But I think it was during the years that Saul lived there and probably made tents, and probably taught people about Jesus. So that is an educated guess. What happened during this time period, the silent years of Saul? Saul spent maybe a decade in Cilicia as a businessman and as a pastor. Now, if all of that is correct, and I think it is, then there would have been many interesting things that took place during that decade. I mean, I don't know how interesting making tents is. It might be super boring. But if he's talking to people about Jesus, you're going to have stories of people who rejected and got mad at him and people who rejected and didn't get mad at him and people who accepted and became Christians and then became his friends. And then, you know, this story went this way and this guy said no at first, but then he came back for tent number two and I talked to him more. Like you'd have all these interesting stories of what took place during those years. And yet Luke and Saul give us no details they just summarize that whole time period in a sentence or two. Even Saul himself summarizes that, that time period in Galatians as, I went to the region of Cilicia and Syria. That's how he tells that part of the story. And so I thought about it this week. And this is the thing I want to teach you. This is the part that I was saying, I think there's value in just knowing what we don't know about. I thought about this story in relationship to my own life. What if this happened to me? Like, What if all the years that I have pastored this church, which so far has been 10 and a half years? What if all the years I've pastored this church, this, everything I've done this past decade, one day got written down like this, and he went to Ocala for a while? 
Everything I've done for the past decade gets, it gets written down as that. He, he went to the region of Marion County. Wouldn't that be depressing? Can you imagine? Ten years of my life summed up in a sentence? Oh, and here's the thing. That could happen. That could happen to any of us. Okay, A decade of our life, a decade that seemed so significant to us as we lived it, could easily become one sentence in a larger story. Oh, that's kind of depressing, and then it gets worse, because then I thought about it. And as I thought about that, it reminded me of a verse from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, oh, somebody groaned. Maybe you were here four years ago when we went through Ecclesiastes. So if you weren't here, four years ago we taught through the book of Ecclesiastes. It is not a chipper book, okay? Don't read it before you go to bed. Save it. For... <laughs> You'll have nightmares. So, but anyway, so, but Ecclesiastes, it's, it, this section I'm going to read to you is not joyful, but I think it is so helpful. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9 says this. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Who would want to be friends with this guy? <laughs> Can one say about anything, look, this is new. Mm-mm. It has already existed in the ages before us. He's saying the life, life is just same old, same old, over and over again. And I don't think he's being literal here. Like, I don't think he's saying that nobody ever invents anything. I think he's just saying that's the way life is. It's the same thing over and over again. And then he says this. This is the part I really want you to get. Verse 11. There is no remembrance of those who came before And of those who will come after, there will also be no remembrance by those who follow them. That's depressing, huh? No one's going to remember you, right? Again, I don't think it's literal. I don't think he's saying there will never be historical figures that are remembered for a long time. I think he's just saying, generally speaking, one day enough time is going to pass and nobody's going to know who you were. I think if the writer of Ecclesiastes were to like make some commentary about the silent years of Saul, I think basically he would say, of course there's a 10-year period of Saul's life that everybody forgot about. That's what happens to everybody for their whole life. It's not just that 20 or 30 years later people can summarize your life, like you summarize a decade of your life in a sentence, or maybe you even summarize a decade of your life in a sentence. It's not just that. It's 200 years from now It'll be like you never existed. Everybody's going to forget about you. And you don't even have to be a Christian to know that this is true, right? For almost all of us in this room, 200 years from now, no one will even know your name. And you might say, well, I don't think so. You don't know what I got planned. Okay, let's test it out. Let's let's test this. I want you right now to raise your hand if you can give me the name of... Your grandparents, first and last name of all of your grandparents, okay? Raise your hand if you can name the first and last name of all of your grandparents, all right? Now, keep your hand up if you can give me the first and last name of all of your great-grandparents, okay? All your great-grandparents, all right? Now, keep your hand up if you can give me the name of all of your great-great-grandparents, okay? right? Now, keep your hand up if you can tell me the name of all of your great-great-great-grandparents, okay? So, in this room, we have one right? One guy with a lot of free time, okay? Um, You need to go to a Bible study or something. I'm just just kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, So one guy in a room this size. That's very helpful for what I'm trying to explain to you. What I'm trying to say is this. It is probably healthy for you to realize that in all likelihood, your great, great, great grandchildren 
will know nothing about you. And we're not even talking about like going back to the Middle Ages. where this, That was just 1800s. Your great-great-grandchildren will know nothing about you. It will be like you never existed. Whew. Aren't you glad you came to Good News Church today? <laughs> Can you imagine what I would have preached if this church were called Bad News Church? I mean, they would have, I mean it would have been way worse. Here's my point this morning. If there is no God watching our lives, if there is no God remembering what happens, if there is no God recording and analyzing and even using your life for his purposes, then from the long-term perspective, your life is a sandcastle. Your life is a vapor. It has no ultimate purpose. It's there, and then it's gone, and it's like it was never there. However, if there is a God who is watching over our lives, if there is a God who is remembering what happens, if there is a God who is using your life for his will, if there is a God who even one day will be punishing or rewarding you based on what you did in this life, then what you do does matter, and it will matter 200 years from now, and it will matter 2,000 years from now. And Saul believed this, and he said something very similar to that in the book of 1 Corinthians. So I don't know how many years later it was, but a few years later, he wrote a, a letter under the name Paul to a group of people in uh, Corinth, and this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. And I, just to give you the context, he's, I think the time period he's describing here is he's saying in the future one day, Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus returns, God is going to make all things new. And there's going to be this time where it, that's called the resurrection, where people who have been dead for a long time and probably long forgotten, but believe in Jesus, will be resurrected. Their soul will be reunited with their body and they will live with God forever. And as he's describing that time, which has not come yet, this is what he says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 54. When this corruptible is clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal, right, he's saying one day, this mortal is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. He's saying that day's coming. Death, where is your sting? De uh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Now the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done, because he lived the life that we should live, because he died a death on our behalf, because he rose again. We have victory through him, those of us who believe in him. Victory over what? In context, it's obvious. Victory over death. Victory over sandcastle life. Victory after victory over tide comes in and it's like you never existed and nothing matters. Victory over death, victory over my life's just there, and then it's gone. No, it's, there's an eternity to be lived with God. And so what I'm saying here is this. If Saul lived in Tarsus and ministered there for those 10 years to get recorded in the book of Acts, then he was a failure because it didn't get recorded. But if he lived in Tarsus and ministered there for Jesus then it was not a waste of his time. And that applies to you and me as well. If you are living for what gets said about you in the history books or your legacy, 
there may end up being some silent years of your life. Things that were very significant to you that are summed up in a sentence. And that could be depressing. But if you are a Christian, what you do for the Lord matters. Even if it's making tents. Even if it's working a job and taking care of your family and just honoring Jesus with your life. What you do for him will matter forever, even if nobody else knows about it. Now, if you're here today and you're an atheist, okay, or you're someone who just kind of leans toward atheists, you say, I don't know for sure what I am, but sometimes I think, like, maybe there's not a God. I want to say something to you, okay? And let me be real clear. I am not even trying to be condescending. I realize, like, we live in a polarized culture where as soon as the pastor says, I want to talk to an atheist, atheists go like, ooh, what's he going to say, right? Like, like you're assuming that I think I'm better than you or smarter than you or, or I hate you or something like that. So let me just be real clear. That is absolutely not true. <laughs> In fact, <laughs> uh, there are some atheists that I like more than some Christians, okay? <laughs> That's a fact. So I don't mean this in a condescending way at all. I just, I care about you and I just want you to think this, okay? If you're someone who's here and you believe there is no God or you even just kind of lean toward maybe there's no God, I think it's important for you to see that your worldview points toward a sandcastle kind of life. It's there, it's real, but then the tide comes in and it's gone and it's like it was never there. Your worldview points to a a no ultimate purpose in the long term kind of life. And you may say, that's fine. Pastor, I know that. I've thought this through, right? I believe that because it's true. Like, I'm just being realistic. And at least I'm being realistic and not making up sky fairies and, and, and some sort of paradise in the sky that lasts forever that I will go to one day just to feel better about this life. I'm just being realistic. And I would say to you, I get that, okay? I'm into realism also. But I think it's important for you to note that you don't live like your life doesn't matter. Like we, you might, we might say, technically we're all just collections of chemicals and there is no grand scheme of things. But none of us lives like that's true, right? There is something in each one of us that typically doesn't let us act like life is a vapor. There's something in us that doesn't let us act like our life doesn't matter. And I believe that thing that's in us is the knowledge of God. And you will never be able to totally shake it. And that's enough for now. I wanted to preach on the silent years of Saul's life to let you know that you also will experience some silent years. A decade of your life, perhaps, that's summarized in a sentence. And that is Okay, because our labor for the Lord is not in vain. That's what, that's what Saul said. It's not a waste of our time. Even if nobody remembers us, a life lived for Jesus is not a life wasted. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word even the sections of your word where you just go real fast over something. I pray for anybody in this room who has grappled with the reality of the sandcastleness of life. And I pray that you would cause that which is already in them, this knowledge of you, to be something that leads them to you, 
an actual relationship with you forever. I pray for those of us who already know you. We thank you for the comfort. We thank you that our life is not in vain, that the labor that we do for you is not a waste of our life. Even though there's coming a day, unless you come back first, that everybody's going to forget us. But you won't. So thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel and for victory over death. I pray you take that truth and, and just put it into our lives in the ways that are healthy for us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let me end with these good words from God's word. Therefore, my dear brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. That is good news.